Welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos. I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and today we're going to talk about the Christ in Egypt. You hear a lot of conversations and things being thrown around this time of year saying Jesus, he's a refugee, he's an immigrant, and all these things happen when he goes down into Egypt. And this is something that we really need to talk about because historically speaking, neither of those things are really true in the way that we use them modernly, but also what really bothers me about this is they reduce Jesus down to something other than the Christ. In the end, the gospel is enough. We want to reach out to all people on this earth because Jesus is the Christ. We know materially he is a Jewish man. There's other elements like a carpenter. We don't go around celebrating him because he is anything other than the Christ. Whenever we take and we reduce the gospel down to something other than the full gospel, then we have sold something short that's not really the gospel, and we've left ourselves in a place without hope. So we must remember that the Christ that goes into Egypt really is the Christ. And today we're going to have a great conversation about all this. We're going to learn some history. We're going to look at Herod, who Herod was. We're going to read a letter that Herod writes to Rome. And we're going to do a lot of talking about the difference between the way of life and the way of death and why it is so important for Jesus to be fully the Christ and us to understand that he is something more than any of our petty little identities we want to put him into and something like that. So thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there's one other with me here in the studio today. Pastor Anthony Alegria. And we're going to have a good time. Send us your thoughts, questions, and comments. Thanks for joining the conversation. We hope that we can take you on a bit of an adventure today. Of course, whenever I talk about Scripture, I generally call it the there's an adventure of holiness that we go on. And when we look at the Gospels, when we look at Scripture as a whole, God is always calling people to get up and go on this adventure. Now, it's not adventure for adventure's sake. It's not just going out into the world and aiming around wondrously or looking for a big batch of gold or something like that. It's a lot more like in that Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where the adventure of family is the greatest adventure there is. And today, we are going to look at the time when Jesus, as a young child, he has to go and be hidden away in Egypt. And there are some things that we know about the gospel as a whole. We know that the Christ came to bring the way of life. And this was his purpose. Even as a baby, even this little child, he is here to bring the way of life. And today in our message, we're going to answer the following question. Who was the Jesus that fled into Egypt? Now, I'm also going to give you the answer to that question early on, and then we'll flesh it out. The answer is quite simple. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And he is fully God and fully man, not at different times, but simultaneously. And the Jesus that went to Egypt was the same Jesus that would die on a cross, resurrect, and ascend into heaven. And now, all this may seem really basic, but it's important for us to remember that Christ truly is the Christ. And I know that sounds like circular logic, but so oftentimes we're tempted to look at things a little differently. But before we go much further, Anthony, would you like to read for us out of our gospel? We're going to look in the gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. All right, so, so many people at this time of year, they're wondering about this child. And this is a good thing. If you're someone who's been a Christian your entire life, or you're someone who's just had a few glimpses of the gospel, it's important for us to come to the nativity and ask that question, what child is this? You know, 
for 2,000 years, we've been looking at this child and saying, what child is this? We know that there's so much that has been revealed about him, but yet there's still so much mystery. He is the Christ, and he's fully God and fully man. And Jesus, in this text that is taken to Egypt to hide, he is the same one that will die on a cross, will resurrect and ascend into heaven. He is the same Christ, Jesus, that will return to us again at the second advent. And that's when Christ is going to return. The only particular aspect of this that we can emphasize in this moment when he goes into Egypt is that he's a young child who needed to be hidden so that he can grow and mature. Now, when we look at this text as a whole, we are challenged to put this in the larger framework of Christianity. And we know that Christianity is always understood there are two ways. There's the way of life and the way of death. The way of life was not already ready in the world. And this is why earlier when I'm saying I, I, I need, we need to push back on when people want to say Jesus is, is anything. If they say he's a, a refugee or an or a immigrant or they say something like he's a Jewish man, um, whatever it is. Jesus is the Christ, and if we reduce him down to any little box, then we are no longer saying that he came to bring something special because, again, the way of life was not already into the world because if it would have been there, then we wouldn't have needed a Christ that was fully God and fully man. The cost of this way was not cheap, and it would take time for the gospel to unfold, and we must remember that the gospel is enough. Um, so let's actually start by looking at the way of life and way of death today. And this is where we're going to get into some fun history. So if you know who Herod the Great is, he's an interesting character. He writes a letter to Rome asking to be given the title King of the Jews, which again, this is later the title that will be given to Jesus, though Jesus doesn't write letters to Rome begging for this. Uh, Anthony, would you read Herod's letter? And this is not the letter when he first becomes King of Judea. This is after there's been a change of power in Rome. Uh, Mark Antony has fallen, and now Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavius, is there, and he's writing a letter to this Caesar asking, can I stay in power? And I want you to just listen to the way the way of death manifests in Herod's letter. It's really kind of bothersome, and we'll get back in and take a look at it. So, Anthony, if you would. Illustrious Caesar, I wait not upon you to disavow the sincerity of a friendship I have always entertained for Antony. And I must be free enough to declare that if it had been in my power to have made him master of the world, he had not wanted that distinguished station. I acknowledge, great prince, that I am indebted to Antony for the regal estate I at present enjoy. And had not my duty called me against the Arabians, I would have manifested my gratitude by being personally with him in the last battle. Now, though, you may have conceived the less favorably of me, because I attached myself to the interest of Antony, at a time when you were his professed enemy. Yet I shall not, on that account, hesitate to make known and defend the services I have done him, and the perfect ex esteem I ever had for him. If you will, for a moment, advert to his rank, and the friendship I bore him, without retrospect, to the peculiarities of his situation, I conceive that you will see so much of gratitude and good faith in my conduct that you may think the acceptance of my friendship worthy of your notice. For the dignity of my character will suffer no alteration whether I vow this friendship to Caesar or to Antony. And Caesar's response was this. 
Preserve the sovereignty which you have hitherto enjoyed with so much honor, and still be happy. Rest assured that your crown shall be more safely secured to you, for the man who is capable of such an exalted friendship must necessarily be qualified for sovereign authority. Be happy in the assurance that you shall be confirmed in the possession of your kingdom. All right, so that's an exchange between Herod and Caesar. And the reason why I want us to look at this today is because this is who Jesus is being hidden from. This is the Herod that is out there in the world. And this is really important to understanding the full trajectory of the gospel. Now, we read those two letters, and I realize that most of us today are not familiar with the nuances of Roman politics from 2,000 years ago. Anthony, do you spend a lot of time contemplating Roman politics 2,000 years ago? Other than that, they're not all that different from today, not really. Yeah, they're not that different from today, but they do have some different lingo and stuff like that. Is that fair to say? Some of the nuances are different. The Roman jargon is not. (laughs) Yeah, you hear like prefects and stuff, it kind of sounds out there. Well, one of the words that you may have heard in this is the word friendship. Now, when we think of friendship today, we think of, you know, somebody you want to go hang out with, but we also have other uses of the word friendship today, like a Facebook friend. You know what I'm talking about? Are you really friends with everyone that's a Facebook friend? Uh, most of them are acquaintances. Yeah, so. most of them are acquaintances. But in ancient Rome, there was an alternative real use of the word friend and friendship. And <clears throat> the significance of this letter is that it is a request for friendship. It doesn't come along and saying, hey, uh, why don't you just let me have this position I'm in? It comes asking for friendship. Because in ancient Rome, being a friend of Caesar was essentially a political position. Furthermore, if you do not have a friendship with the emperor, you're not going to have a position in the Roman Empire. That's just plain and simple. So being a friend of Caesar is not so much a statement saying you want to go and, you know, have a meal with him or hang out with him or go do something fun with him or even work with him. It just means that you want a position with him. It is a status. It is not a interpersonal relationship or anything like that. And to have one's status of friendship with the emperor to be questioned would mean you probably lost your power. And we know this happens, and even within the gospel where they're taking Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and they're saying, hey, Pilate, you know, you're not a friend to Caesar if you let him be here. Essentially what's happening is they're threatening Pilate and say, if you don't kill him, we're going to write a letter to Rome and say you're not a friend of Caesar, and then you'll lose your position and maybe your life too. So to have the status of friendship with the emperor is a pretty important thing. Forgive me. It's that time of year where voices aren't that great. But a friendship of the emperor is a very important thing. And in this letter, Herod is asking for that. But there's also some other details you'll find there. And we shorten this down because it's a long letter. But one of the things you can pick up there is that Herod really hasn't done anything at all. And if you read the longer version of the letter, he says things like, oh, I would have gone to battle with you. Um, but I was kept at home. And Mark Antony, who was emperor before, you know, I, I would have gave him so much wealth. He even has that line in the excerpt we read where he says, I would have made him master of the world, but he didn't want it. Basically, in this letter, Herod is admitting he has done nothing and contributed nothing to the empire. He, he's done nothing at all. He's just a friend. He has kissed up to the emperor. And he blatantly says in this letter that he's no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who the Caesar is, whether it's Antony or the new Caesar. As long as the Caesar will permit Herod's friendship, he'll kiss up to him. As long as he'll be allowed to be king of Judea, that is. And that's basically what this letter is. And it's, it's gross. This is one of those things where you see these guys, and these are uh, 
we're not better than people like this because we're all sinners and we all need a savior. So I'm not here to rate out things like that. But this sort of behavior is just putrid. It, it is vile to see stuff like this. And historically, people like this have had power. They still have power today. People who come up and they basically are asking people above them that says, if you'll give me power, I will kiss up to you. And look how nice and, and humble Herod is in this. Anthony, do you think he's this nice and humble when Herod kills all the innocent children? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. He just wants to kiss up and that's it. But this is the way of death. It contributes nothing righteous. It'll bow down to anything that'll grant it power. Furthermore, it'll kill anything that threatens its power. Herod is so nice and polite in this letter, but yet he's a monster to the people who live under him. He acts so nice and kind. And you even see here with, with Caesar, he says, oh, a man of your character must be in power. He must have sovereignty. When the truth is, is he's a tyrant and it's, it's gross. It's, it's disgusting that this sort of thing happens. Eventually, Herod is going to murder mercilessly children, and he's going to do this with great tyranny. The innocent among innocents, he's going to kill them. And this is the way of death. This is the force that Jesus is being hidden from. So I want to share a little parable with you that is actually from my own life. Many of you who know me, um, I live on a farm, used to have a lot of cattle, um, kind of got out of the cattle business. Now I have just a small handful of sheep, um, nothing compared to the cattle we used to have. But I've got some sheep now, and the other day I went out to feed them, and this happened like two days ago. And I was out with them, and if you know anything about sheep, they're not terribly intelligent. Um, they kind of understand that they're prey animals, and on the whole, they're rather docile creatures. They just creep along the earth with a single purpose in eating. They just want to eat, and that's about it. But they flock together, and they wait for their master. They wait for people, and the sheep I have, they've got to understand that pretty much all the people that come there are tame and they'll give them some treats or something like that. And they, they take to their leader, the shepherd, really quickly. But just like children, they're kind of always listening for a treat or something that's out there. Their ears are kind of specially tuned for this. And like many creatures, they, they are always looking for that next treat. And if they get even the smallest glimpse of humanity, the faintest sound that a person is up near where they, they get feed, they're going to come running to the fence row in hopes of getting their little treat, a little snack. So the other day I went out to check on the sheep and I carried with myself about a handful of sweet feed. Now, that's not going to get you very far with animals, but if it's enough to get one or two of them to taste it, the whole flock will come with you. So I'm out there with these sheep and they heard me before I expected them to. So I just took the sweet feed I had and put it in a trough. And now, so I'm stepping over a fence to do this and there's clearly not enough feed to satisfy all of them. And they're kind of all aggressively around this one trough trying to get there. And there's several of them that can't even get up close to the trough. So I could decide I'm going to go back to the house and get a bucket. And when I returned, instead of going to the same trough they were at, because there's just a whole mob of them over there, I go over to a little bit more distant trough and I go to pour it in there. Now, it just so happens there's a ram, which is the male side of the sheep. Um, he's just standing there, just kind of hanging out. And he's watching me and he's really hungry. He's like, come on, where's my treat? And I have a whole bucket full of sweet feed and I pour it in the trough right in front of him. And he runs up to it and he takes a nibble. But then he keeps turning his head. He keeps turning his head and he sees that the whole mob of sheep is over there mauling this empty trough. And he keeps looking over there and he's like, man, they've got something exciting over there. And he knows that he's coming here to get the sweet feed. He nibbled it and he has an entire trough filled right in front of him. But he, he can't handle the peer pressure. He sees that mob over there and in a moment of jealousy, he just takes off running and goes to the empty trough. And 
Of course, he can't even get up to it because there's so many of them. But imagine this. You know what treasure you want. And you give up that treasured gift because you were absorbed in what everyone else was doing. I gave the ram an abundance of the very thing that he wanted. But he rejected it because he was overwhelmed by what was going on at the empty trough. And this is how many of us on earth are. This is really how Herod is as well, if I'm going to be blatantly honest. Um, and this is how people are when they take and they turn the gospel into something other than the gospel. They've been given a treasure and they're like Herod who says, you know, rather than enjoy the Christ child, which there's a star that has come in the sky for it. I mean, if you want to talk about divine providence, this is obviously bigger than you are. Instead of enjoy that, he's kind of like this ram that says, you know what? You've gave me this big treasure in front of me, but all the excitement's over there. So that's where I'm going to go. You know, that's where the, the popular forces of culture, you know, I'm not going to be chastised if I go over there. Everybody's doing that. It'll be fun. It'll be great. I'll be in the in crowd. And they give up the treasure right before them. This is what so many people do. And this is what it's like to reject the gospel. Herod did evil in response to the revelations of God that were right before his eyes, just like that ram gave up the filled trough right in front of him. So let's change gears a little bit and talk about the Christ child that's hidden away in Egypt. Evil manifesting through the carnal nature had retaliated against this Christ child. The way of death, it could not stand the way of life. The price of Jesus being born of Mary was great. Furthermore, the price of God's revelation was great. The price of this revelation was that Herod was going to slaughter the most innocent among the innocent out of spite. And it's unlikely that Herod really understood who Jesus was, but that is of almost no consequence. Herod's sin is that he's just concerned with himself. He's an idolater. He wants to steal life that's not really his to take. He wants to play God. He's doing all this stuff. He probably doesn't think that while he's doing it. He's just concerned with his own interest. And that's a very popular trademark for those on the way of death. But when we look at the Christ child that's hidden away, many will come to the gospel, and particularly this element of the gospel, with the mindset that the truth is not enough. So they're kind of like that ram where they're, they're sitting before the trough. They've got all this feed, and it's not enough for them. And they, they say, well, we want to reach people. We want to get people motivated to go out and reach people. And it's not enough for them to see that Jesus is the Christ. So they start to put Jesus in all these little other boxes. They, they say, well, you know, maybe we can manipulate people if we say Jesus, he's, a, he's an immigrant, he's a refugee. But the truth of it is, is Jesus is fully God, he's fully man. And that, that is enough. He is the Christ, he is the Messiah. But many people, they're not content with this. They want to justify their own thinking and they want to have some power. They want to turn Jesus into a tool rather than Jesus being a savior for all people. And this has taken a lot of forms throughout history. Some people have come along and said he's a normal man who's just picked by God and elected to be a son for a while. He's never truly divine. Others come along and say he's God during some occasions, but then he kind of flips and he's man during others. All of these are falsehoods. It has been revealed to us that he is both fully God and fully man at the same time. And when it comes to this flight to Egypt, people often try to alter the nature of Jesus to suit their needs. We're in a time and day and age, and again, the reason why I bring up this specific example is because I've heard it like five times this week. People saying that, oh, Jesus is the immigrant and refugee. They, they're turning Jesus into a political weapon. And not only that, they're doing it with something which is just simply not true. One can rebuff this by stating the simple facts that Egypt is part of the Roman Empire, so they're not going to another nation. Um, the livelihood of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus has not really changed, nor is their status. And again, they're not going somewhere to, to start something new. They're going to be hidden for a while. 
But this really falls short because it doesn't reject the premise to start with. You can reject this by just stating the facts that it's not true, but we need to do more than that as the church. We need to reject the premise that Jesus came to fit into an identity box. We live in a day and age where this is so popular. We, we as the church, we have not done a, a good enough job on the whole to push back on this. We need to reject the premise of all of this jargon talking about identity. We have whole generations of people my age who have grown up thinking like sexual interest, what you look like, stuff like that is your identity. As the church, we should say no to all of this. You are a creature created in the image of God, created male and female, and God has a design for you, and you're all sinners in need of salvation. That's what the gospel teaches us, and we're all loved by God with a love that is so merciful, none of us could ever fathom it, and it is so severe that it causes us to die and be born again. Christ was not born of Mary to descend to any identity of this sort. And whenever people do one like refugee or immigrant, which is historically not true, they're falling short. And even when people do something which is historically true, like the idea of him being a teacher of the law, being a rabbi, being a carpenter, being a Jewish man, they're still falling short because these are not the reasons why Christ came. The world was filled with carpenters, teachers of the law. It's filled with people fleeing from one place to another. The world is filled with all of these things and always has been. But Jesus came because he needed to free us from the way of death, to liberate us. And we should be motivated to take the Christ to us without us putting Jesus in a box. I find it so ridiculous that people tend to do this. And especially when the gospel is filled with so many titles for Jesus. You get things like he's the son of man, the son of God. The gospel is littered with real titles. Emmanuel. We're here at Christmas. People are going to be singing a lot of Christmas hymns that have that happen. Well, we're still in the Christmas season, but we're past December 25th now. We're in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas right now. But... The gospel is littered with real titles for Jesus. Why people want to add others on top of that is beyond me. It's as if they think the gospel's not enough. We have to add something else in there for us to be motivated by it, which is really sad, really sad. So later in Jesus' life, he again reminds us that he is not here to simply fit into a box. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this is what is important for us to understand, because this puts us in the right perspective about who this child in Egypt is, who this child who grows up to be a man, he grows up, well, he goes through teenage years too. Um, sometimes people want to say Jesus goes from being a baby straight to being the guy um, who comes out <laughs> preaching a message, but there is the teenagers in there, and I have no idea what teenage Jesus is like, but we know that he's fully God, fully man. Um, I imagine he's as righteous as he always is but at the same time he's also going to be interacting with other kids he's going to be doing kid stuff um we don't need gnostic gospels to tell us this i mean this is just intrinsic to the fact that he is fully man um while being fully god at the same time but the reason why i bring up this luke text about foxes not having holes is it puts us in the cosmic and really all of creation outlook on this so heaven included is that Jesus is not concerned with a geographical location or anything as petty as citizenship. The, the reason why Jesus was not welcome was because the way of death will not tolerate the way of life. Here it is on the way of death. Well, the man, Anthony, and I know Anthony hates the rhetorical questions I ask him because I want him to answer them. Well, the man that wrote that letter to Herod, or to Caesar, excuse me, Herod writing that letter to Caesar, who's that nice, that polite, will he tolerate for a moment 
a child being born king of the Jews? No. No, no. And this is a lie that we've allowed ourselves to believe. The, the idea that the way of death will put up with the way of life is not true. It, it will not. Evil will not willingly permit the righteous to advance. And we should never forget that. This is true across all of our lives. It's true about politics for the last 2,000 years and even before that. Um, but the way of life wasn't with us before that. Um, Anthony? Likewise, I would say that uh, the way of life's toleration of the way of death is very limited. It is different. The way the two interact with one another is not mirror images of one another. I don't know if that's well, definitely kind of what not. I, I would definitely not say that uh, the way of life is seeking to just absolutely end all those who are on the way of death. Like, for instance, the way of death does. The way of death, yeah. those who are in the way of death are very happy to end those who are uh, on the way of life. But also, the way of life is not entirely acceptant and entirely tolerant of that also. It's nope. not just a clear opposite. Nope. Because the way it's, of life doesn't tolerate sinfulness and wickedness. It there is, is, like, you know, disgust merciful. for that. It is merciful and severe. Jesus doesn't come to condemn because the world already is good at doing that. That's what the Gospel of John tells us pretty clearly. Um, but Jesus comes to redeem, and we're all sinners, so none of us are better than anyone else. As much as we are disgusted by people like Herod, we're not any more capable of finding salvation by ourselves than Herod is. Jesus Amen. had to come for us to be saved. And even though we have such extreme disgust for people like Herod, we can't allow ourselves to become haughty and think that suddenly we're, we're saved because we're not that monster. Um, we all need Jesus. And evil, while it wants to kill the way of life, the way of life wants to redeem those who are on the way of death. And it is different. It's very different. Um, we all are sinners, and evil desires to rule over us. Um, just like the ram that I have, and I, it's just funny to see this in animals. He turned away from the thing he truly wanted to go into the momentary temptation of his peers. And so many of us will turn away from Jesus for this reason as well. And the Christ that is hidden in Egypt, he didn't do that because he was desperate and he just wanted to pursue things that were low, but he went there so that he could mature and grow. The truth of the flight to Egypt is that Jesus is the Christ. That's why he's there. He's the Christ child and he needs to be hidden away from the evil tyranny of Herod and the way of death so that as an adult, he can show people the way of life and give them hope and aspirations. The gospel did not come to assure people of bad news, because gospel means good news. It came to give them good news and liberty from the lowly aspects of fallen creation. Anthony? One might also say that it was to uh, foreshadow redemption and deliverance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just yeah. like how the people of God, the Hebrews, were uh, delivered out of slavery and out of Egypt. So uh, the Son of God would also foreshadow how he would deliver us sure, by leaving certainly. Egypt back into uh, the promised land. This is not something that is desperate. It is something that has aspirations. And I probably need to come up with better language for that because I don't know if desperational is a word. But we live in a theological ghetto where people have desperate theology where Jesus just comes to be low. No, he comes to liberate us. He doesn't go into Egypt to stay there. He comes there to come out, to call people out of sin. The whole entirety of the gospel is about pulling people out of this stuff. Yeah, and I mean, it's got a lot to do also with um, God's will, God's plan, some people might say. But I mean, the eschaton, the last days, God has uh, intentions for his creation. Certainly. And uh, all the while, 
God is pushing us towards those ultimate ends, which is, you know, the new Jerusalem, heaven on earth, yeah. redemption and resurrection of the saints and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's definitely not a uh, go down low and stay there. It is very aspirational. And it's not even a go down low to come back up again, because sometimes people will do that to justify sins that they're in now. They're like, oh, well, I can't, I can't give up my sin now. You know, this is the same thing people have done with like, I'll be baptized right before I die. No. Jesus n- does not come to the earth to be a sinner for a while and then become a non-sinner. That, that's not how it happens. Jesus doesn't come to wallow in fallen creation and say, oh, yeah, just coat me in sinner. I'm going to come down here. That, that is not how this happens. Yeah, he never no, uh, that, sins. He suffers. He suffers, yeah. Without any shadow of yep. a doubt. And so maybe that might be considered some sort of going low. But he doesn't suffer on his own account. He suffers because the world hates him even though he yep. loves the world. And this is where... I know Anthony gets all worked up when I say this, but this is where we have to be theological adults. We have to be mature. We have to make distinctions. Just because he is born and put in a manger in a stable, that is not depriving him of anything that God has ever said is good. God has always said the things that God gave us even before we had sin was marriage, to to be taken together and have children. He's there with Mary and Joseph. He's there with a righteous couple. And that's, that is a gift. That's a beautiful thing. He's going to have a great childhood. He's going to grow up in a righteous Jewish family. He's going to come up doing the things of the law, but also being involved in the carpentry work there with, with Joseph. We get all of these things that happen, and this is enough. This is the adventure of holiness, and this is why Jesus came, to show us this way of life. All the worldly identities that people try to to do to to justify how they relate to Jesus and say, well, I can relate to him because of this. Jesus came to us being fully human. That's enough. We don't have to say he's a human and he's a blank or he's a human and he's a sinner, which is where a lot of this logically goes. They have to put some qualifier on there. They can't just say he's fully God, fully man. Simultaneously, there has to be some, well, he's also in this box too. Therefore, have some special connection with him. And it, it, it turns bad really quickly because... Whenever we sell the gospel short, we're selling something that isn't the gospel at all. Anthony. And I don't know that we can say that God came in the flesh so that we could relate to him in the typical sense. I think definitely there are aspects of revelation there. God revealed himself in the flesh to us, and that has increased our understanding. And uh, later the spirit came, and God revealed himself in the spirit so that we would uh, increase our understanding of Christ and God. But um, in either case, like we can definitely uh, understand more about God through Christ, but I don't know if it's about relating and sort of like having sort of more intimate feelings, I guess, for him. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's that was necessarily uh, the purpose, though, of course, God loves us and desires us to love him. Certainly. Well, Christianity's always understood that you've got the way of death and the way of life. And one of the things that we haven't done a good job of positively asserting lately is what it means to have a relationship with Christ Jesus. I think we're all like, well, we're Protestants, so we have a personal relationship with Christ Jesus, and we kind of leave it there. But it's also like when people say the commandment that Jesus gives us is to love. And it's like, hold up, it's a little bit more specific that it's to love as Christ loved you. And... We, we make this out where we need to relate to Jesus, and that's why he becomes human. And we don't really specify that this is about having a reconciled relationship. And again, even the world Amen. reconciled has gotten botched in late years because that means you just run down to the streets and you touch the untouchables and suddenly you're doing everything righteous. That, that's not it either. 
Um, but it means you are restored. You are redeemed to the proper relationship with God that you were meant to have. If Jesus just came so that you could relate to him in the sense that he's exactly like you, you know, he's a, he's a sinner. He, well, in my case, since I'm a preacher, he's just another teacher of the, the law that's just wrapped up in, in sin and doing everything the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes are doing. You know, if he came to be doing that, or say you're out there, maybe you're an electrician, uh, maybe you you work in law enforcement, something like that, um, just to be another person of that, or maybe you're a school teacher. If Jesus just came to be something like that, then why did he come at all? Because the world is filled with with people who teach the law, people who who enforce the law, people who who do every aspect of society. We didn't need a savior who was exactly like us. We needed one who was capable of bringing salvation, which inherently means he's not. <laughs> exactly like us, Christ. Yeah, the need for him, the so-called need for him to be relatable, also sacrifices the need for him to be entirely above us. Yeah, and that's the thing: is Christ has a unique nature, and there's the Greek where people they get on the homoousia and homoousia, like is a similar substance, same substance, all that stuff. Christ is fully God; he is fully man. And even if you don't know the big theological words from the Greek, you know that. He's fully God, fully man at the same time. And that, it's not just that it's enough for, for a moment. It's not just enough to be poetic and sound good. It is enough to bring salvation for all people. It's enough to redeem creation. And that's such a valuable, beautiful thing. And we don't need to twist that into anything else. When Jesus began his ministry, he came to show us the great and mighty love of God. It would embody love so merciful it could forgive sins and so harsh, so brutally severe that it could cut people off from their further themselves, that they would be born again and leave behind the dead form of self. And they would join Christ Jesus on the way of life. Now, this way of life, it does come at a great cost. And this is something we should also remember. Whenever you're doing things righteous, it is going to come at a cost. But earlier I was talking about how the way of death will not ever let the way of right uh, the way of life just it's not going to willingly let that happen that happens even with our own lives i know i got started and mentioned politics but it, it gets truer and truer the closer you get to the self the if you're somebody who's thinking about making a decision to become a christian all the temptations all the things on the way of death they're going to come after you like crazy if you're say you already are a christian but you've you've made some mistakes you've fallen short and you want to get back right with with god and then also right with everyone else, which is a product of getting right with God, you will find that it's really hard to because the way of death isn't just going to roll over and let this happen. It's not like my dog when I get home and he sees me and he's really excited and he'll do anything I want. Um, for like the first 15 minutes, he's so happy he'll play any game I want to, whether it's me making him do dog chores, which is like put up the sheep or something like that. He's ready to work. That's not how the way of death is. It does not willingly want to cooperate. And we see evil kill all of these children. And it's not the nature of God to forget the death of the innocents. Just as Rachel wept when her children were no more, God weeps for the death of, of, of these children as well. God weeps for the death of his creatures. And Christ came to us to bring salvation. It's both God and man. And Jesus leaves us with a choice. We can either exist on the way of death, where... If you're on the way of death, I mean, a lot of great perks with it by material standards. You know, you get to be friends of Caesar. You get to have material possessions and power. You know, you get to be the one who's in the in crowd. You're like that ram I have who runs to be with the rest of the sheep there at the empty trough. You know, you get to be in the crowd. Everybody's going to give you praises. You've got lots of friends here on earth. You've got political power. You've got all this stuff. But you've given up the treasure that 
you really wanted, even if you didn't understand how you wanted it, and it was right before you. When we choose the way of life, which is the way Jesus has brought us to, it demands we be cut off from the old ways of sin. It's not easy. We all have to do it. And the way of death will not willingly let us go there. It'll create more suffering. It'll hold us hostage. It'll even kill innocents if it can. But the way of life offers us things of value that will last for eternity. So the final question I have for you is, how do you choose? Anthony, I think that about wraps it up. Yep. All right. Well, with that, God love you and have a blessed day.